Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. This sunny season, people are packing their bags to take off on summer trips. On today's show, we'll look back at some interviews with guests who ventured across state lines. We'll hear from a group of filmmakers who traveled to Peru to take care of abused orphans. And we'll hear from a Fordham professor studying ecotourism. But first, we hear from a Bronxville local who rode from New York to Brazil on his motorcycle. Renato Frizone and four friends made the trip to their native Brazil. Along the way, they hit roadblocks, had mechanical problems, and were even harassed by Mexican authorities. There was a lot of policemen. And they, if you look at their face, they look like kids. Oh. But they look like kids in uniform and with big guns. Uh-oh. And immediately, they start, they saw all the plates from New York. They saw Christmas coming. They harass us. They really harass us. And they Like, start, what did they do? What did they say? You, you're, you're on your bike. You're stopped. Well, they can't say anything. Well, you just pass a, a red light. It mm-hmm. was not true. Mm-hmm. But they can say, oh, you, you need to have this in your vehicle. It's not here. So they can come up with anything. So any, you would pull over, and then they, they would, would come up to you, over. and they'd say, oh, you know, you don't have A, B, and C. Here's a ticket. Right. Or would they make you pay them then? Well, or? they say you want to go to um, to the place where you pay your ticket, or you want to pay here. Of mm-hmm. course, they want money. But How much the scary you- part was because they were very aggressive, and there was a number of them. Mm. And we are in the middle of nowhere. Right. There was nobody around, so we... They could do whatever they wanted with us. Mm-hmm. It was nighttime, so I was fearful there. Mm-hmm. But then it happened a second time. Oh, no. <laughs> so by then you kind of knew what to 30, do? 30,000, 40,000 miles down, <gasps> I mean, the same thing happened. So And then it happened again. So, so by the third time, you're just like give me, yeah, giving up the money? And just giving up the money. Did they ask for a specific mm-hmm. amount, or do you give the amount that you think they want? The or? first one they asked, they asked for $200. He was very up front. But the others, they kind of let us decide what to give. They just ask for some money. For how some much help. did you give the second time and how much did you give the third time? I, I did, gave $20, but I don't know how much my friends right. did. So everybody <laughs> was giving money to everybody. So right. like, And were you afraid to like, show them what you had because you thought they might end up you know, saying, uh, oh, I had two more. wallets before smart. I left. Very smart. Uh, they said, uh, I was reading about that, so they said, uh, take two wallets. One, you leave you know, your documents. The other one will leave a little change in case you need to... Throw it and go yeah, or, or give it away to somebody. if you go someplace that you don't feel comfortable, use the other wallet. Mm-hmm. That's smart. So that worked out pretty nicely. <laughs> so then once you got out of Mexico, you ended up where? In Guatemala. Okay. Guatemala was uh, a little bit of trouble the same way uh, the, the border mm-hmm. and then on the road, but not as much as They still Mexico. wanted money, but it wasn't as yes. bad? How long did it take you to get through Mexico? It took us three days. Oh, so you actually had to spend the night, and there was oh, still yeah, a little yeah. bit of... Oh, yeah, We were spending the night on the road, and, uh, you know, every every morning. Were you camping out or or staying, like, at a hotel? No, or? we stay pretty much anything that uh, appears around us around 7 o'clock. Because we are riding pretty much from 7 o'clock in the morning to 7 o'clock at night. Okay. And whatever was closer to us and that we felt comfortable... And safe. Yeah, how would you know it was safe? Did, were there certain t- well, telltale yes, signs? Absolutely. There is, there is, uh, when you, you find a place to sleep, if it is enclosed, so you know you, you have a gate that's going to lock everything and you're going to be safe in there. I mean, some kind of safety, I guess. 
because you don't know who the people who the people are, but um, assuming they have a business and uh, they have a gate, and we all locked up, and then we'd be okay. So if the place was open, we never stopped. We just kept going. We couldn't just park and leave the motorcycles and everything else outside. We want a place that we can, you know, feel secure. Because of the the situation in those countries in terms of security, most of the places they do have some gated area. Mm -hmm. So it's not that hard to find. So Was that the most uncomfortable part of the road trip? Was it more so fearful worrying about the people or worrying about, oh, I might slip and fall or... The people. The people were the, the, the most people. fearful. Because that's traveling. what we heard. Mm-hmm. You know, every place you stop and uh, you, you stop to eat, you stop to put gas and people tell, they look at us and they see those beautiful motorcycles. We had beautiful motorcycles. And uh, the two vehicles with the, the plates of New York, they say, watch out. Mm. That was a warning from everybody. Yeah, from and we took took to heart. But thank God, nothing really happened. Uh, besides, you know, the money that they asked for, they didn't rob us. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just asked for the money, and then we just went. How long until you get to? Because you were on a time limit to get to Brazil. So how long from here was it going to take you to get to Brazil? Now. Well, at that point, we d- we start saying we we don't know anymore, <laughs> right? <laughs> because we really lost everything that we planned was behind us, because every place that we passed was something different, and we did not expect to spend a whole day, or sometimes two days, or eleven days, in Cartagena, so it was out of the question. So we were just going to do what we have to do. We get up in the morning, we ride the motorcycle, until we get to the next frontier. And see what's going to happen uh-huh. there. So it actually, in a way, was a good lesson in being resilient and kind of just letting things happen and oh, enjoying yeah. things for the moment. For me, it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not for everybody. <laughs> Two of my friends, they were really concerned. Two of them were actually moving back to Brazil, so they, they were not coming back here. Mm-hmm. So they were concerned with money, and they were concerned that it was taking too long all so they could delay. roll with it. They just couldn't. Just they enjoy couldn't cope with it. Yeah. For me, it was okay because I, I, I set out was an adventure. Mm-hmm. So when you put that in your head, you know you don't have much plans. You just go with the flow. Right. Let whatever as happens as happens. I, yes, as long as it was okay physically and uh, mentally, mm-hmm. and to me it was all right. So mm-hmm. <laughs> I was a little bit tired, but it was okay. <laughs> so now you you get your bikes, you get your stuff. You're you're heading away from Panama. So now we, from Colombia, we, we crossed Colombia. It took us three days to cross Colombia. And uh, actually, before we crossed Colombia, there was a major thing that happened in Colombia because of the rain. So we are at um, one of the mountains, and um, three of my friends, they were ahead of us. And uh, the road started getting really bad, and um, they had to block. They had to stop everything because the the road just gave away. Oh, no. So there was no way to come or go. But the, the three friends, they already passed this, this area. And uh, I stayed behind with another friend, and we couldn't go through. We just got stuck there. So my friends, they were driving a little bit faster, and they were passing faster than we did. And they were able to make, you know, uh, ahead of us quite a bit. We're talking about maybe 15, 20 minutes ahead of us. Mm-hmm. We are in the middle of this mountain, in the middle of nowhere, but we are stuck over there. And on the left side and the right side, you see the cocaine plantation. 
Really? That was a little intimidating. <laughs> unnerving, <laughs> intimidating. And people said uh, to us before we set up, they said, don't travel at night on these roads. They said, just go during the day. I, actually, none of those places I recommend to go at night. Mm -hmm. You travel, you travel during the day. No sun, get out of the road. Mm. Why? It's dangerous. Dangerous. What could happen? People rob you. They, you know, mm -hmm. block you on the road in the middle of nowhere. There's no help. So um, that was very interesting because it ended up that we had to stay there 34 hours. And it was dark. And we had to sleep there. Where did you sleep? We slept well. I slept in the car. <laughs> and and I could I could guess you were a, a little nervous. You were like nervous. parked right there in the road, and you just had to right right there. The only good thing is there was of course more people. There was more people on the road like us, uh, you know, stuck. Did you there know was, what was going on, or you just knew we were stopped? We, we knew because some of the people that came through, they told us, you know, that happened. The, the road gave away, so they said nobody. It was impossible. It was impossible to pass. Did your friends know? How did you get? How did you well, let your friends who had gone ahead of you know they, that you guys were stuck? They they pass uh, this bad area, and they radio us because we had a radio between the two cars. So they radio us. They said, you know, this is a big trouble here. And so, what did you look at then? Because I I would think you wouldn't want to venture out too far with the with the cocaine crops over yeah. here. You didn't want to go sightseeing. Well, <laughs> at night, you hear them working on the plantation. Yeah. Uh, you hear them, the radio was on, you hear them talking. And we said, well, if they come here and they knock at our car and ask for money or whatever, what are we going to do? Right. Absolutely. We had no, we just prayed <laughs> pretty much. And it worked. <laughs> it was a really, really interesting night. Wow. It was an interesting night. What was fine was moving a little bit, but then the uh, only cars. And then the, the truck drivers, and there was a lot of them, they started getting really upset mm. because they said, we want to go too. Mm -hmm. But they were too heavy to they go, were too I would heavy. Think. Mm -hmm. They were too heavy. They couldn't go. So what they did, they threw the trucks in, the, in front of the, the road. They said, no, if we don't go, nobody goes. Oh, no. So that's why we, we got stuck because they said, if we don't go, nobody goes. It was incredible to wow. see that. And, uh, and I felt sorry for the people that were in buses. Because mm. the buses wouldn't go through, so they had to um, get off the buses mm -hmm. and walk through that. And we talk about walking a good four or five miles because uh, you, the bus would stop uh, away from the area a little bit, and they had to walk that with luggage and some of them with kids. And that's how and much of the road was, was messed up, about a yeah, good four or five big, miles. Big, big chunk of the, the road gave away. And the rest of it was pure mud. mud. And they had to so, wade through this mud to get to the other side. So how did you get across? How did you eventually get well, across? Well, finally, uh, after 34 hours, uh, we got to the trouble place. And um, uh, they were, f like, for all this time, they were trying to throw dirt and fix the road a little bit. So finally, we were able to pass. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was bad, but not in the sense that we didn't get stuck or anything. The car passed through the motorcycle. But it was, was pretty bad to see uh, people there were really walking. Yeah. And they, they had no other means of... Um, people were renting boots to go across. The, the locals, they start coming with uh, uh, those... Supplies and boots the, and such. The, the, the rubber boots. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they were renting to people for them to be able to cross. Wow. It was a scene from... <laughs> Did you take a picture? <laughs> yeah, we had some mm -hmm. pictures. Yeah, I had some pictures, yeah. 
So what happens when you get to Brazil? What was Finally, the first place you went? We went to towards the Amazons. So uh, once we got very close to the Amazon, and of course that's the frontier with Brazil. How did that feel? Uh, what a relief. <laughs> <laughs> we really, uh, we, we stop and cry a little bit, actually, <laughs> because they say, okay, now we are home. <laughs> yeah. So whose house did you stop at first? Did you go with family members or did uh, you guys? My sister is still there. So, uh, but I stayed there 24 hours. My, my flight to New York was on the next day. Oh, no. So did you get there for Christmas? Was it no. Christmas? It was after no. Christmas? My sister waited for Christmas, for New Year's. We got there on uh, January 7th. Oh, wow. And I flew back to New York on the 8th. Oh, wow. <laughs> because that was the only time we had. Leaving New York City with a tank of gas. Got my bag and my guitar. I'm going to get out fast. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today we're listening to some past interviews with guests who've traveled to exotic places. Filmmakers Mike Campo and Jeff Aziz of Grassroots Films did a documentary called The Human Experience. It follows a band of brothers who tour the globe as they try to answer the question, what does it mean to be human? Their experience took them to Africa, where they talked with lepers in a colony. They spent a week living homeless on the streets of New York City. And here, Mike and Jeff share their experience volunteering at a hospital for abandoned children in Peru. So ride, ride, ride with me, baby, come on. Ride, ride, ride with me, baby, come on. How did you choose that particular orphanage to go and help? Well, it was served for the cause that was already on their way. Mm -hmm. That's where they were going. So we just kind of tagged along with them. Uh, they had done these kind of mission trips in the past. and you know, Jeffrey... Documented the whole thing. Yeah, just filmed yeah. it. And my brother Cliff and I were just right there getting to know the people. Dr. Tony is... Uh, you know, he's a guy from Tampa, Florida, and, and then when he took a trip to Peru, and he kind of fell in love with Peru, and it, it seemed and that... And he started the orphanage? And he started the orphanage. Mm -hmm. yeah, this is an American guy who gave up everything. I mean, legit doctor here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Gave up everything to work and to live in Peru and help, and these help children. poor people. Mm -hmm. The kids specifically. When you were there, were you living outside the orphanage, in the orphanage with the kids? Like, how did the living arrangements go? Well, we... Because the kids seem pretty attached to you in the in, yeah. in, in the in the film. <laughs> yeah, that was incredible. The attachment you know the kids had with us. We didn't stay at the orphanage because Dr. Tony couldn't accommodate thirty of us. Mm -hmm. There <laughs> so, were thirty of you that went. Well, between the surfers and the camera crew, there okay. was close to thirty. So we More had to surfers. find yeah. More surfers than camera crew. Right, right, right. <laughs> so we had to kind of get a little place which was right up the road, literally like a maybe like a ten fifteen minute walk, mm -hmm. and so. We stayed over there and had everyone pretty much just walk to the orphanage. And What did you learn about being there? I'd have to say there was just like this, you know, because growing up I, I suffered, but nothing compared to what these kids are going through. So there was like an understanding. Yeah, I was like going to ask you that. Did that come up at all with this with these kids? Because some of them had horrible stories. A lot of the kids are, are deformed, you know, right. they're malnourished. And, and um, then their parents actually would hurt them more so that right. they would be better beggars right right yeah you know what i learned from these kids is like the motivation the desire that mm -hmm. they have uh the hope that they have really because these kids were so hopeful in the fact that all right you know when i turn 18 or when i get older i'm going to be able to walk for the first time in my life wow. you know because some of these kids um were born deformed in their legs and so dr tony's 
taking them to the hospital so they can kind of restructure their leg to normal mm-hmm. and so that they'll be able to walk maybe play you know soccer or something mm-hmm. like that to run some of these kids dreams are to run and it's incredible like the the patience and the and the hope that they have and really the the love for one another it's just truly incredible truly is so jeff what life lesson did you come away with once you left peru you know, I, I could tell you now, like, there were really four elements that united everybody together. And and I, I'm going to mention the leper colony. Okay. Uh, and the AIDS epidemic. Okay. You know, what really united all of them together from the homeless man to Peru. Well, we have to in, explain that from, yeah. from Peru, sure. you guys, in Grassroots Films, the group went then from Peru to Africa. Right. Yeah. Everything I've ever learned from this entire trip was four elements that connected all of them. It was really faith, it was hope, it was love, and family. Those were the four elements that really united all of the people together, no matter what religion they were, what traditions they practice every day, um, their political views, uh, their way of life. It was simply human beings uh, enjoying life because for them life was life is a gift. And they celebrated every day, despite their suffering. I mean, they're actually, because of the disease that they have, their bodies are decaying. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, and and didn't at one point the people in the leper colony were explaining that their families had just forgotten about them, had disowned them almost because of this disease. I think one of the lessons, I don't know, Jeff was talking, you know, about the the four things that just really connected everybody, and it's true. I mean, every place that we went this is what just united people or this is the things that were most important in these people's lives you know and it was it was a huge lesson for us coming from an industrialized country you know such as america um to be in these places and really see these people and learn from them because these people are not confused Mm -hmm. they have a clear understanding despite the infirmities despite what's wrong with them despite you know whatever they have a clear understanding that their life has meaning. Mm-hmm. Well, we spoke to people, you know, in a leper colony um, who told us if they woke up tomorrow, the reason was is because God had a purpose for them that day. Wow. I mean, I don't know how much deeper I can go. You want to talk about faith? I mean, I have no idea. Like, I, I, I try to wake up in the morning and feel like that every day, you know. Yeah. But that was a true experience that I had never, I'd never heard those words before. Somebody so deep. I mean, these are people who are suffering. They could die tomorrow. Yeah. You know, they, they're and they're in pain. They're in pain. Some of them, uh, some of them are worse off than others. But this hope and this, this all about you know you rather than all about me attitude, is just I mean something I think we can all really learn from. It's contagious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. So you just said that you try to get up in the morning and think about what you learned. Well, purpose. Your purpose. Yeah, because, I mean, I think everyone's asking, well, what's my purpose? Especially today's age. Forget about it. You can lose, you know, what we're, what we're all about in, in a second. And it's like these people who are, who are really suffering, really poor, don't have those distractions that we have here. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a clear understanding that life is worth living. Life is beautiful. Life is a gift. And you know what? When we all come together, it's a celebration. You know, that's what it's about. When you were making this film... What were you trying to understand about yourself? You know, to be honest with you, when we first set out to do this, we we never thought of, like, what we're going to get from it. Mm. Never once. 
Um, our desire was to, to make a great film that was really going to talk about life being beautiful. Some of us in the past that had an opportunity to travel to some third world countries, and anyone who's ever done this kind of work, whether it be missionary work or just traveling to help out, it's like, I think when you first get there, you really feel like, you know, you're going to be going down and you're going to be helping these people. And, you know, you come from America. Or, right. You know, you come from an industrialized country. You're going to show them what it's all about. Right. You know little, I mean? little ego. We know. Little ego. We yeah. know what it's about, right? <laughs> right. But things change when you get there because, you know, when you spend some time with people who are really uh, suffering, whether it be in third world countries or whatever, it's like they really teach you what life is about. And to make a film about that and to tell their story and to give them an opportunity to share that with people, that's what we wanted to do. Yeah. You know, as filmmakers, as an art, was really to, to tell their story. You know, the homeless man on the street and, and just, you know, the people in Peru and people who are suffering with diseases, we wanted to tell their story. Ask them, what is life all about? The Human Experience went on to win many awards, including Best Documentary at the Atlanta International Documentary Film Festival. Up next, we hear from Fordham professor Robin Anderson. She found herself in Curaçao while researching ecotourism. There, she enjoyed preparations for Carnival and uncovered some of the island's rich and diverse culture. Usually we hear it pronounced Caraco, but that's incorrect. Right. Um, we have different ways of pronouncing it, but the, the right way is Curaçao. Why did you end up in this beautiful place? I'm doing research on ecotourism, especially wildlife encounters, and with marine mammals, which includes swimming with dolphins, really kind of fun things like that. And you may say this, this is research, but you know, somebody's got to do it. Oh, hard, <laughs> hard work. <Yeah. laughs> and so I went there actually writing up Curaçao for the Fromer's portable ABC. And the ABC is Aruba, Bonaire, and Curaçao. Once you traveled there, did you get to take part of Carnival, first of all, because that's what a lot of people know Carousel for, correct? Yes, but because it carries on from, say, uh, January 8th right through the middle of March, they have all this uh, activities around the Tumba Festival and who's going to be the main character singing the Tumba in the main carnival. Now, what's the Tumba? The Tumba is a music particular to Aruba and Curaçao. It's, of course, an African beat. It came in in the 17th century. And right now it's kind of mixed with Latin jazz and merengue, wonderful kind of carnival music. So what were some of your favorite highlights of your trip? I loved meeting all of the people. It's such a diverse culture. Sadly, this the whole history of these islands, as you know, in the Caribbean is, is fraught with some kind of pretty dramatic histories of having the native populations wiped out because of that kind of rich history. But Curacao, you add that Shell Oil went in in 1950 and pa made one of the biggest oil refineries in the Caribbean at that time, which brought a whole nother wave of international workers in from Latin America, from Brazil. Uh, and you mix all of that together, and you've got basically people from 50 different countries. Uh, an incredible language, Copapamiento, which is a combination of French, Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, English, with African-American linguistic aspects in it. What the oil company did do is provide jobs, I think, at a time that got the country out of the legacy of sharecropping. Uh, it's very well-off country, really. The, the islanders go to 
Holland to be educated. They they all can have a free college education. Everybody's fluent in many languages. They're friendly, and they have a standard of living that's very high for a tourist destination, really. Tour and you guide. were able to see sides of the island that just a normal tourist might not have been able to because of your experience as a travel writer. Right. So let's talk about some of the people Great. that you got an opportunity to meet on your trip to Carousel. There was this uh, herbalist who I found pretty interesting when I was listening to your audio. Tell me about her. What was That's her name? That's right. Uh, Dina Veras. Mm -hmm. And she had this wonderful shop in, in a garden. She'd been educated in California. She does international speaking tours uh, to talk about uh, the folklore of, of natural remedies and how medicines originally came from plants. Now, Robin, when you were speaking with the herbalist, uh, she gave you a recipe, so to speak, for something that I've never had, cactus. Cactus soup. And it came out when she was telling us about one of the local cactus. There are many local things uh, on the island. And, you know, in her garden, we were there, and she was showing us a way to harvest the cactus with this special tool. So you take this home, you take off the thorns very quickly with a knife, and you put the slices on a stone, you beat it, you get a slimy green mesh. You cook your water, you throw it, and that's the soup you make. And you stir the soup with the lele from the lele tree. That's how you make the cactus soup. The cactus is very good for the intestines to stay young, you know, and that's why it's our local dish on, 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 the, on the island. The cactus, when it come, becomes older, it will become very hard wood, hollow inside. So formerly people used to make the roofs of, for their houses, beds to sleep on, boxes, spoons, rain sticks, was all, all made by, by the cactus. You see, this is cactus, hardwood. You also got an opportunity to meet a rabbi who has a kosher kitchen. Yes. Tell me about him. He's another example of the incredible diversity that's, that's the traditions of Curaçao. The Murano uh, Jewish community arrived in Curaçao around the 1600s via Spain and Portugal. And the, the synagogue there is the old synagogue that's been in use in the Western Hemisphere. The rabbi that we spoke with is part of another community. There's actually two Jewish communities that came to Curaçao in the 1920s, primarily of European Jews. And what did the rabbi tell you about uh, the islands of Curaçao? Well, he, like many people who go there, see the natural beauty. And Curaçao is famous for having so many different kinds of beaches and a number of different uh, natural areas. So it's got diversity of landscape and ecosystems and people. Curacao is the most westernized island in this whole entire area. A lot of offshore banking here, a lot of big companies invest here. You know, it's got natural beauty beyond, uh, really, it's just incredible stuff. You met a, a character named Captain Goodlife. <laughs> Tell me what your name is on the island. I'm Captain Goodlife for the tourists. So, how do, how do you live up to that name? The name says everything about uh, the way we live here. It's a good life, it's, it's honest, it's holy, it's nature, and it's nice. Who is Captain Goodlife? Captain Goodlife was a local water taxi um, destination, really, where you go to a bay called Santa Cruz, and you kind of have to, you know, seek him out a little bit there, Robin. He's kind of over on the bay on the left, and he has a, his, his ha hand-built house into the 
in a veranda there, and he'll take you to some secluded locations along the coast. Now, as you can see, you have Dutchess, Chinese. They all come here because I think it's, it's the name said it all. The Holy Beach, the Santa Cruz Beach, you know. So that's my motto. On the YouTube, on, on the Google, on the, all these website things, you, you, you just go for CaptainGoodLife.com or CaptainGoodLife, YouTube, Facebook, whatever. I appear there, and it's nice because I never touched a computer before. People who came here, they wrote stories about me, and it seems to be working. So the good work is, the, the word is getting to the people, so it's nice. I'm satisfied. You take people uh, to beaches that are quite remote, where they can be, find some serenity, they can be just by themselves. Yes, yes, yes. Where, where are those beaches and what do they call Well, them? when I started this product, this business, uh, I had to create stuff. There's a, a ship that's um, sunk just off the coast. In fact, it was his father's ship and he sunk it. I, sadly, he sunk the ship while his father was still alive. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, he fled the island at one point, but he was welcomed back later because I think he sunk it illegally. <laughs> but <laughs> but that's very common um, if you want to take divers. You often put something in the water to help the coral grow and to be a, a, an attraction for divers to, to see the fish. and uh, See all the beauty underwater? Yes. Now, frankly, I don't like to dive sunken ships because I think they're kind of dangerous, but many people do. It's an attraction. But there are some, some nice corals uh, and some little inlet bays along the, uh, the coast from, from Santa Cruz on that part of the island. Professor Robin Anderson says she hopes her work on ecotourism will inform and encourage visitors to the island to respect and nurture the environment. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. To hear the full interviews from today's show, you can check out the Fordham Conversations webpage at WFUV.org. And I want to give a special thanks to my producer, Alan Kanlick. Stay tuned for Cityscape with George Bodarkey next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.